Good afternoon, St. Paul. Good afternoon, friends and family. Welcome to TNT this afternoon. I am glad to be with you all today and sharing in God's word. And I'm glad that you had time this afternoon to join me as well. Uh, grateful to Dr. Scott and his absence for allowing me to the opportunity to share with you um, and continue the discussions, the wonderful discussions that you all have been having every Thursday about the letter of James. Um, so without further ado, let's open up for a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come and gather on this day. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to share in your word and to learn from one another what your word says so that we can apply it to our lives, grow closer to you, and build bridges with our neighbors, brothers, and sisters. Lord, we thank you for how you are going to move in this discussion and reveal yourself to us. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. So I don't want to delay us too much. We have a very meaty passage of scripture today. Um, and so we are coming from James chapter four, verses one through 12. Um, and I will primarily focus on the New King James Version. You have a different version. Don't worry about it. I'll address that a couple of times as far as different translations or keywords that you may hear that are not in the New King James. Uh, so let's enjoy our discussion together and have a good time in the Lord today. All right. Um, James 4, 1 through 12 reads, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure? that war in your members. You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss. That may that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? Verse six, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Verse six is going to be our key verse today. We're going to anchor there when we get to it. Let's move on to verse seven. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. I'm sorry, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Verse 11, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? All right, 
let's get ready to dive in. But before we do, I want to give you a caveat or bring to your remembrance something that you've already learned. We've been discussing James since early October. Dr. Scott has walked us through every single chapter. And so I just want to bring uh, to your memory something that he already discussed with you. This letter that James writes, the audience of this letter is Jewish Christians. It's important to remember this because Jewish Christians, he's addressing Israel. These are people who are Israelites. Since he's addressing Jewish Christians a lot through this, especially during this particular passage, you're gonna hear some things that you're like, isn't that in the Old Testament? Haven't I heard that before? James is intentional in this letter. He's bringing things to their remembrance, things that are in the Torah, things that are in the Old Testament that they have been taught, that they have known that their ancestors have passed down to them. He's bringing this back up to them. Nothing is news. He's just reminding them, you already know this. So let's get our act together. Okay. So let's dive in with verse uh, number one. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? We're talking about church folk, but let's break it down. Some of you probably have the NRSV or NIV translation, uh, maybe a message Bible. The NIV, I like how it phrases it. It says, your desires that battle within you. I think the NRSV says cravings that are at war within you. We're talking about an internal spiritual battle. We've got spiritual warfare going on within ourselves, but all of that nastiness that's going on within us, the battle between our old fleshly selves and uh, the new person that we've become and God trying to live holy, they're at war. And our sinful person is trying to overtake it. Um, so there's a war within us because we are seeking out the pleasures of the world. So in the Greek translation, the word for pleasure is hedonon. And you've probably heard this word before. It might sound familiar to you. Hedonon is where we get our modern day word hedonistic or hedonism. And this will bring to remembrance what we learned last week about ungodly wisdom. It is that pursuit of sensual self-indulgence. We talked about sensual last week with ungodly wisdom. So pleasure is seeking out pleasures of the world and sensual things that have nothing to do with God. Um, and because we're seeking these things out and they don't align with God, we don't have peace inside of us. We're at conflict. We're at war. Um, and, and the Greek translation is a polemis or polemai. And that means literally battle, fights, or war. But polemai is source of quarrels and conflicts. Because we have this internal fight going on inside of us, it's spilling out into our relationships that we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are causing verbal attacks. We're causing animosity. We're causing conflicts and quarrels. It starts from within us. We can't pick a scapegoat. We can't say the devil made us do it. We can't say that it's our brother or our sister's fault. This is some mess, some nasty desires that we have going on in us um, when we choose to submit to these pleasures instead of aligning with God and submitting to God. Okay. And this probably sounds familiar to most of you. Uh, Paul talks about this internal war in Romans 7. He, he talks about how I, I want to do what's right, but I end up doing what's wrong. 
It's this constant internal struggle that we have uh, to stay in God's will. All right. Um, and there's other things that go on within us. Uh, we've talked a lot in the book of James or in the letter of James about uh, envy and strife and, and malice and how, how we don't watch our mouths. Um, some of that comes out of gossiping and slandering. All of these things are within us warring and we have to strive to overcome them. So let's move on to verse two. Uh, verse two says, you lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. Now, let me point out that you do not have or do not obtain. It's mentioned three times just in verse two alone. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, but let's let's there's some strong words that are used in verse two. It says, um, and it's really talking about that our worldly desires, they become so strong that they can lead us to some other sinful acts. It's not just about we're pursuing or we're wanting or desiring. We act upon it. Our behavior and our conduct becomes sinful also. Um, that word murder sounds strong, but you all watch the news. You read the news. And there are times when you probably do see on the news that something that turned into a stabbing or something that turned into a, a gunfight, when you find out what caused it, it was malice or someone feeling rejected or anger that stirred up and rose up. And in that, in all that battle going on, out it comes into how you interact with your neighbor, your brother, or your sister. These pleasures, this lust, the things within us that are not of God, they can cause us to act in a sinful manner. And that's in modern day life. But there's plenty of examples in the Bible. We can look at Cain and Abel. We can look at Joseph's brothers. Um, we could even look at the prodigal son. His own brother was angry that his daddy wanted to take him back after he sinned and went off and did whatever he wanted to do. You wanted your father to reject your brother and turn away love. Our, our nastiness inside of us can cause it to spill over into our relationships with others. So we have to be mindful of that. So we do not have, we do not obtain. Let's look at that a little closer. Um, there's two reasons that are two key reasons that we don't have or obtain something. Number one, what we want to obtain, what we want to have, it probably does not align with holy living, it doesn't align with what God wills for us, what God desires for us. And then the second reason that we do not have is what we're asking for, what we desire, we're asking with bad intentions. We're asking from a place of selfishness. We, we, we want something, so that it will edify us only. We want something so that it will shine the limelight on us. We, we want something that someone else has that's not for us. And if we're not bringing requests to God that align with God's will for us, if we're asking for something that's gonna be extremely selfish, why would God want that for us? That is not what we are supposed to be asking for. It's an ungodly request. But I want to focus on the you do not have just a little bit more. Um, 
And all these pleasures that we lust after and all the things that we're seeking to pursue that have nothing to do with God, when we're focused on what we do not have, it would be great if we paused and assessed, why are we thinking so much about all the things of the world that we do not have? Whether it's worldly possessions or attitudes or, uh, you know, looking at what a blessing that God gave to someone else. And we want it, we want that for ourselves and whatever our agenda is, we're so, we become consumed with it. And instead of focusing on what we do not have that's worldly or selfish, what if we took a moment and paused and thought about, why is this desire so important to me? Why am I pursuing this lust and so consumed by it? Instead of lusting and coveting, what if I thought I don't have self-control? Why don't I ask God for that? I'm lacking patience right now. Why don't I ask God for that instead? All the quarreling and fighting that I have going on, not just within me, but with my brothers and sisters, why didn't I stop and ask God for more love, kindness, or gentleness? When we pursue the pleasures of the world, our fruit of the spirit, it rots because we've chosen to surrender to the world instead of align to God and let our fruit be productive. Let's move on to verse three. So verse three says, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you spend it on your pleasures. So yeah, we dug into that a little bit, but let's talk about this word amiss. And let's also talk about, but you do not receive because I want to make sure that we don't misunderstand the you do not receive part. Um, so when you don't receive what you prayed for, James is not saying that it means that you asked with a selfish heart. He's not saying that if you don't receive what you pray for, that you were, you know, you were doubtful in your prayer, that you were selfish and that your prayer was all about worldly pleasures. That's not what he's talking about here. Um, he specifically uses the word amiss, which means you asked with bad attentions. You've asked with uh wrongness, uh, depending on what version you said, it says wrong motives, I think in the NIV. So he's talking about those types of you do not receive. Um, for some of us, we have to remember what it means that when we ask and do not receive sometimes. We have to remember that we're always supposed to be praying for God's will to be done. Sometimes we don't receive because what we asked for was not in God's will. Remember, Jesus taught us how to pray. He taught us, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when we don't receive and we're not asking from a selfish place, sometimes we don't receive because it wasn't God's will. Also, sometimes we think we didn't receive, but the fact of the matter is, is God responds to prayer in God's time not our time, in God's time. So sometimes the answer to the prayer is not yet. Sometimes the answer is no. You did not receive. Doesn't always mean that you ask from a place of sinfulness. It's about, is it aligning with God's will? So yes, James is really talking about people here who are asking with wrong motives. Uh, they aren't praying for their neighbor. They aren't praying to even be spiritually mature. Uh, and they're definitely not praying for the marginalized and 
being able to serve the people of God better. They're totally asking for something that only benefits them and doesn't even benefit them for a godly reason. Okay, we're gonna move on to verse four. And verse four starts out with, with strong language. Verse four says, adulterers and adulteresses. Let's just pause right there for a second before we even go any further. So remember I told you at the very beginning, James is intentional with his language in this letter. He is addressing Jewish Christians. These are people who know the Torah or their ancestors should have passed it down to them. They should know. So the, uh, it depend on your translation, I'd only say adulterers. But in the Greek translation, he is focusing on the feminine form of this. He is talking about a wife that commits adultery. This is specific to Israel. They know what this means. Remember, this letter is not news. He's reminding them of things they already know. The feminine form, adulteresses, is specific to how in, in the Old Testament, Israel is often referred to as God's wife. He's reminding them, you all do know better. You know when you will choose to align with the world, when you choose to do your own things, when you succumb to the worldly pleasures, that your, your sin is the equivalent of committing adultery against God. Um, so I know we got some Bible scholars on the chat today. I know some of you are thinking, oh yeah, I remember certain certain narratives or uh, certain things that prophets said. So just to give you a quick reference, um, I'll use Jeremiah 3 and 8. And Jeremiah 3 and 8 says, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Israel is very familiar with being referred to in their relationship as the wife of God. They know what this means. They understand that it is ultimate betrayal against God because they're special to God. Um, and so let's go on with what the rest of four says and that we've understood what adulteresses or why that, that phrase is, uh, that, that particular noun is so important. The rest of verse four says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So the word enmity, if you've never heard that word used before, it basically is just a state or feeling of uh, opposition. It's hostility against someone or something. So when we're enmity, when we're in enmity with God, we're opposed, actively opposing God. So I want to pose a question. I want you all to think about something. Have you ever considered that when you choose to conform to the world, when you choose to befriend the world, flirt with the world, be in relationship with the world, that you are opposing God so strongly that you basically are saying, I hate God. I love the world, I hate God, because the world and God are not friends. They're not even frenemies. They, they, you can't have both. And in the case of James's audience, he's saying, you can't be the wife of both. You are God's wife. So you have committed adultery. When we choose the world over God, we commit a hate crime. We say we hate God. So we don't wanna be opponents with God. That's not the position any of us ever wants to be in, but it's that serious when we align with the world. Let's move on to verse five. 
Okay, verse five says, or do you think that scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? Um, okay, so this one uh, definitely bringing to remembrance of things that you know you, you you're thinking about the spirit that dwells within you. You may bring to mind uh, Genesis, um, Exodus twenty stands out for me. Like let's just go straight to Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. If if the audience that James is talking to knows nothing else, they know the commandments. And they know if they align with the world, if they love the world, if they get in relationship with the world, they have chosen another God. It's it, it's it's very clear. And God is jealous. So let's talk about God's jealousy. So in jealousy, first of all, God wants all of us. And why shouldn't God want all of us? God is our creator. God is our creator. And yet we choose the world that didn't even give us life. God is our creator. And because he's our creator, he loves us. He wants to be in relationship with us. God. God doesn't want us to fall trap, uh, fall into the enemy's traps. He doesn't want us to fall um, into the devil's trickery. He definitely doesn't want us to surrender to anything that might be of the devil. He only wants to love and save us. God doesn't want to have to destroy us because of disobedience, because of us choosing to align with God's opponent. Now, go and pause here. Verses one through four. James has just told us about ourselves. He he has gone off in this letter. He has said that you're you got a spiritual war going on inside of you. you you're causing conflict and quarrels against your neighbors. Uh, he he has called us adulterers. Um, he is just letting us know we're not even praying right. He has told us how horrible we are on the inside and how much we have gone against God. But he doesn't just chastise us and leave us feeling all bad and broken about ourselves. He comes in in verse six, which is our key verse, and he gives us some good news. So verse six, he says, but, but he gives more grace. If you're a highlighter, if you like to circle and underline things that he gives, I would extra underline the word more in grace. We already know God gives us grace and mercy. We already know that about God. But James is letting us know, in spite of all that you did in verses one through four, in spite of all the list of crimes that we have committed against God, our God is a God of another chance. Not only does he keep giving us grace, but in all this mess, here comes more grace. But there's another word after this, more grace. The next sentence opens with therefore. Circle it, underline it, however you want to do it. If you saw what my notes look like, it's a whole lot of underlining and highlighting over here. So therefore, therefore is that like, listen up. You know, if you were in class right now, it's when your teacher stomps on the floor, pounds the desk to get your attention. This is the answer key to the test. God gives you more grace. You've getting another chance. You're getting, you're getting an opportunity. That's what God does for us. 
but because he's given us more grace and another chance to get it right, there is something required of us. You're not just going to take your get out of hell free card and then go back to your relationship with the world. He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He's reminding them of something they already know. This is straight from Proverbs 3 and 34. They already know this. They are supposed to resist the world and humble themselves before God. Otherwise, if they choose to be proud and arrogant, God will resist them. So it's their chance to get it right. James is about to give them some instructions. That's what this therefore is like. Okay, y'all, you got your more grace. You got it together. So in spite of all these flaws and your disobedience, God still hopes that you're going to get it together. And so James wants to help. He wants to help. You know, he, he comes in. He's told us all the ways that we are out of shape in this chapter. You're out of shape. You don't pray right. Uh, you got quarrels going on. You're an adulterer. You're out of shape. But I'm going to come in and I'm going to give you a training plan to get you back in shape. And so he leads us into verses seven through 10 which are our training plan. So his hope is that even with all this free will that we have to make the decisions, that we will still choose God, even with our free will. We'll choose God and get in right relationship with God. And when we do that, remember, the goal here is to get in right relationship with our brothers and sisters, with our neighbors. We're supposed to be building bridges, not barriers. Okay, so verses seven through 10. New King James starts out with, therefore, again, pay attention is the answer key to the text. Seven through 10, I'm having y'all underline some things. I'm going to go through these kind of quick. So seven through 10, I'm going to come back and go through them. So seven through 10, I want you to underline the, a couple of verbs. So you might have a different word in your Bible, but I'm going to get the one that's closest. Underline the word submit and resist, which are both in verse seven. And verse eight, underline draw near. Also underline cleanse and purify, which are in verse eight. In verse nine, underline lament, mourn, weep. Depending on what translation you have, after lament, mourn, weep, your Bible might say change. Um, if you have change, do that. If not, underline laughter turn to mourning, joy to gloom. That's fine. And then verse 10, underline humble. Okay. All right. So we're going to start from the top. So verse seven, therefore, here comes our training plan. Submit to God. Self-explanatory. Submit. Stop surrendering to all these pleasures and desires that you want, all the things that, that are causing you to murder and covet. You got to let go of those. Let them go. Submit to God. Get in line with his will and resist the devil. Resist the devil and the devil will flee from you. These are essential commands to get us back in right standing with God. So let's talk about this resisting the devil. Sounds easier, sounds easy, but if it was easy, James wouldn't have had to tell us about ourselves in verses one through four. So resist the devil. First of all, let's talk about the word, the name devil, um, Diablos. It means slander. So we love to go around talking about fake news and this person is a liar and 
you know, they bend the truth or whatever. Well, that's what the devil does. That's his job. His name means slander. So we need to resist the devil because he has nothing good to tell us. He's full of ungodly wisdom. But he's smart. He knows, he knows everything that we know, and actually he knows it better. So we got to resist the devil. And the best way to resist the devil, Jesus gave us a great example for how to resist the devil in Matthew 4. Jesus is in the wilderness. The devil keeps trying to tempt him. He's using things that Jesus knows. He's using scripture. But he, but Jesus knows scripture, obviously. And he knows where the devil has bent the scripture, where he's twisted words. And that's where we lose out on being able to resist the devil. Where our, the devil knows that we don't have our stuff together. The devil knows we don't pray every day. The devil knows that we don't talk to the Lord. We're not meditating. The devil knows how many hours we spend in our Bible. And he knows that we don't know none of these scriptures. So he's able to use them against us. And we don't know when to discern what's right and wrong because we don't know what the word of God even tells us. If we get in the word, we can resist the slanderous attacks of the devil. We can resist when the devil is in our ear telling us, it's okay, you could do this. No. <laughs> So resist the devil and the devil will flee from you. This is a promise. The next command, the next verb that you should have underlined is draw near to God and God will draw near to you. Now, this one is my favorite of the commands. Love it, love it, love it, love it. Because what it says is that when we seek God, when we get our mind right and we call on God, when we go looking for God, when we pray to God, God is not hiding from us. God is not turning his back on us. God has been waiting on us to draw near to him. God's waiting on us. So when you get your mind right, when you decide you're gonna submit and finally resist the devil, God is waiting on you. And we already know he's waiting on us because our key verse said, but he gives more grace. He wants to give us another chance. He wants us to draw near. So just do it. <laughs> so draw near to God. And there's plenty of examples in the Bible of this. And some of you are probably thinking, oh, I don't know about that one, but I know that the Bible says, uh, seek God and you will find him. Same concept. Seek God and you will find him. You call on the Lord and he will hear you. The God walks with you. Uh, Psalm 145, Jeremiah 29. They both have examples of drawing near to God and God being there. So our next set of uh, commands slash verbs in our training plan, we've got wash your hands and purify your hearts. Now, this is an Old Testament reference that James's audience definitely knows. And we may not do this anymore. We're not old school. We don't, we may, we don't do it this way. But he is really putting them um, where they can position themselves and change their posture as they are coming to the Lord. Don't just come back to God any old kind of way after you've been cheating on God. You need to get right. So he's saying, wash your hands and purify your hearts. So one example of this is with Aaron and his sons when they become priests um, back in Exodus. There are instructions for how they are to cleanse themselves before they come and bring sacrifices, before they enter the tabernacle. This is a posture of making sure I am as clean as humanly possible before I present myself to the Lord. Don't just come back any old kind of way. Start prepping yourself so that when you purify your heart, you know that 
the words of your mouth and the meditation of your heart and, and the prayers that you're about to uplift, that they're coming from a, a true, sincere place. Think about it. We even use some of this language before communion. We talk about, let us take that moment to purify our hearts before we drink of the cup and take of the bread. It's about purifying yourself before you come in back in communion with God. Okay. And as we draw near to God, when we purify our heart, when we submit and resist the devil, what we're doing is slowly we're combating where we were in verse one. We're going away from being double minded and coming back to being single minded with God. It helps set us free from those temptations. It helps deliver us from wanting and seeking those pleasures. Okay. So the next set of commands, I'm going to lump them together. It says grieve. I had your underline grieve, mourn, wail. And then depending on your translation, it said let your laughter be turned to mourning or is it change? I like the NIV version. It said change. That, like there's enough said right there. You need to change before you come back to God. So change your laughter, your joy, and your gloom. Okay. Now, break this one down. Let's think about this. James told us about ourselves really bad in verse four. He said, you have cheated on God. You have committed adultery. You have done the ultimate form of betrayal by aligning yourself with God's enemy. Now, let's make this really plain and clear. I want you all to understand how much of a, how much of a violation this is. In our current times, like right now, today, in our current times, if you found out that your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your fiance, your spouse was seeing another person at the same time as you and had the audacity to come to you and say, I appreciate all that you do and I know you love me, but world is so attractive and I want world too. I want both of y'all. Are you good with that? That's basically how we treat God. We want to be booed up with the world and we want God to be okay with it and stay with us in the relationship while we're booed up with world. That's how we act. None of us would be okay with that. We would be ready to kick somebody out the house. We'd be signing divorce papers. We we would not be okay with that. But if they came back with a, and said, I'm going to leave world alone. I only want to be with you. Think about what it would take for you to believe your significant other when they say, no, for real, I'm done with him. I'm done with her. I only want you, babe. What would it take? If they just came back and said, I'm sorry. I like you. Take me back. And that's all they said. They said it just like that. I'm sorry. I want you. Take me back. You would call up your friend and be like, I don't believe them. They wasn't even sincere. They didn't even cry one tear, nothing. So let's think about how we do God. We think it's this easy to kiss and make up with God. We think that we can just buy God some flowers, put a Hallmark card on the counter, take God out to Uptown for a nice dinner, maybe take him to Jared's, get him some new jewelry. Let's just kiss and make up and forget about that I was booed up with world last week and that I chose another person. That's what we do. It doesn't 
sit right with us in our human relationships with one another. So why do we think it's okay to come back to God any old type of way? No, these commands that James gives us, he says, grieve, mourn, well. You need to come back to God in a sorrowful, remorseful posture. Show God that you really do regret what you did, that you really are remorseful and you really do want to be back in right standing with him. All that laughter you was doing, all that joy, you got that from being booed up with the world. Mm -mm. No, get rid of that laughter. Get rid of that joy. That's not the joy and the laughter that you got from the Lord. You didn't get that from God. Mm -mm. Change that to mourning and gloom until you get back in right standing and reconcile with the Lord. That's what this part is about. It is our posture and how we present ourselves back to God. And y'all right. I see y'all put in the chat. God does not like to share. No. And why should he? He created us. We are his creations in his image. So why should he have to share us? This is his relationship. We're his wife. If you do these steps, then you can humble yourself properly. Your heart will be humbled. Your mind will be humbled. Your attitude will be humble. And you can get back in right standing with God because you'll be single-minded again. But he gives more grace. Mm. All right. So let's get to verse 11. So in verse 11, it says, do not speak evil of one another, brother. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law, judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law. That is quite a tongue twister. And some of you might be shaking your head like, what? <laughs> and that's okay. Let, let's keep it really simple with something that I know we've heard recently. The first part of that says, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. Plain and simple. Watch your mouth. We all know that. We got that in James 3 last week. Watch your mouth. Don't be slanderous. Don't defame your brother and sister. Speak with love and kindness and gentleness when you come to your brother and sister. Now, James's verbal is very intentional. He is talking about how we speak to other believers in Christ, how we speak to other church folk. Um, and so I know you're thinking he's using the word judge here a lot and he's making it sound like judge is bad. You're not supposed to judge is a sin. And some of you are probably thinking, I've heard that in the Bible. You're not supposed to judge. That That is bad. That's not our role. Only God can judge me. Some of you have probably said that recently to somebody. You can't judge me. Only God can. All right, that's fine. We're going to talk about that today and find out if you can go back and tell your brother or sister next time you can't judge me. Let's find out. Is it true? All right. So James is not really saying that judging is wrong. He's really talking about what he said this whole time. It's really about our motives, our intent and how we do things. It's not that you can't correct or criticize your brother and sister. It's, you know, you should be able to tell your brother and sister, like scripture says, that we are supposed to do this. This is good conduct. This is Christ-like conduct or character. You should be able to tell your brother and sister, this is right or this is wrong. But let's think about how we do things sometimes. You see your brother or sister doing something wrong, or you know that they said something wrong, 
And instead of saying, my brother, my sister, can I speak to you in private? Um, can I have a word with you? And confronting them with kindness or gentleness, no, we want to embarrass them. We want to tell everybody we know what they did, tell everybody we know what they said, call them out in front of people and check them so that everybody else knows that we know what's right. When we come to our brother and sister that way, that is the judging that James is warning us about. Because when we do it that way, first of all, when we don't do it with love, when we don't do it based on scripture, we're also violating royal law. It's supposed to be loving our neighbor. How am I loving you if my goal is to embarrass you and shame you for the wrong that you've done? And in the process of doing that, in the process of me judging you, I broke a law. That doesn't add up. That doesn't make sense. It's really about how we do it and what are we basing it on? Um, so James, let's think about James. James has given us an example in this passage. So in verses one through four, when James told us about ourselves, was he not judging? He said we was messy. He said we cheated on God. He said we prayed with mal, mal intentions. He judged us but he backed it up with scripture a lot. He didn't call us out our name. He didn't have an attitude about it. And then he tried to help us. In this particular context, James sent it as a letter. He wasn't trying to put them on blast. He didn't put it on the internet for everybody to read and know how they was messing up. James gives us an example of how to criticize constructively some of us don't give constructive criticism. Our goal is just to tear you down and condemn you when we find out what you did and what you said. And that is the difference here. Judge, uh, James is not a hypocrite. He's showing us this is how you can judge correctly with your brother and sister. This is an example of how to do this. So since he's telling us what's a good way of judging, what are the bad ways of judging? What is the one where you know, some of us get bent out of shape and be like, you, you can't talk to me that way. Who are you to judge me? So here's some examples. So often I talked about like trying to embarrass people, trying to call them out and shame them like that. That's not good. That That's a bad way of judging, because, again, you're causing conflict and quarrels when you do it that way. You end up causing more problems instead of correcting what is wrong. Um, are you making up rules and assumptions and traditions? Are you basing what your neighbor did is wrong? Your brother and sister, are you basing what they did is wrong based off of your personal pet peeves? You don't like something. You don't agree with something. There ain't a scripture to support anything that you said, though. That is not constructive criticism. That is not proper judgment. It's not based on anything, and you're not doing it out of love. Are you leaning to your own understanding? Have you misinterpreted and twisted scripture to make it conform with what you want your brother or sister to do? Again, where is your motive at in approaching your brother and sister and correcting them? So where, how do we back this up? So look at the time. Okay, cool. So how do we back this up? So there's plenty of examples in the Bible that talk about warnings on how to judge or how to confront your brother and sister. It's nothing wrong with confronting your brother and sister. Your brother and sister can definitely come to you and with love say, my brother, that's not how we do this. That's not how we should be doing this. 
Christ wants us to do it this way. Her, quote some scripture, say a prayer with your brother. That's a good way of doing it. But let's let's look at some other ones. So like, for instance, in 1 Corinthians and 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul warns about judging other people's motives. This is a bad form of judging. He's warning us about this. So think about times when maybe you saw someone do something. Maybe you saw someone even get recognition. You saw somebody raise their hand and volunteer, be like, yeah, I'd like to do that. And you was like, mm, she just want to be on the program. Mm. He only did that because they paying. <laughs> you judge someone's motives. You don't even have the whole story. You never even talked to them. You didn't even give them a chance to explain themselves but you completely judge them and think you have the right to approach them and check them on their behavior based off of what you made an assumption of. You're judging them off their motives and it hasn't even been revealed to you why they did what they did. And um, in John chapter seven, we're warned about condemning and not only condemning like admonishing, but also doing it hastily or superficially. You got this much information you didn't bother to hear the end of the story. You didn't bother to learn who all the characters were involved. You got this much information and you ran with it and you have judged someone unfairly based off of superficial information and did it quick, fast and in a hurry. And again, causing quarrels and conflicts and last but not least, violating royal law. <laughs> you are not showing love in this. You're, you're tearing down the community of believers all because you want to sit in a seat of judgment. You want to play God. In the process of doing this, you put yourself in the role like you're a law giver, a law maker, but you're not. Our only role is to be keepers of the law. And that's real hard to do since none of us are without sin and we're not the author of the law. So what's some other ways? Um, Let's see, uh, Romans 14, Paul talks about judging based on opinion and having no facts. Uh, but Jesus probably gives us the most, uh, the most uh, common one that we're familiar with. In Matthew 7, Jesus warns about judging hypocritically. And for most of us, that's probably what we're guilty of. We see the speck in our neighbor's eye, but don't see the log in our own. We don't see the plank in our own. We're quick to see what they did wrong and let them know and anyone else know and sometimes do it harshly, do it prematurely, but didn't do it with love and didn't get ourselves right. Only dealt with them. It's not our part to try and be above the law. We're not God. That's not where we want to be. When we try to do that, we're violating a whole lot of rules and we're quickly putting ourselves back in the place of being God's opponent. It's not our role to be there. We are keepers of the law. So verse 12 says there is one law giver who is able to save and to destroy. So we break laws all the time because we're simple, right? God is always fair and impartial. God is consistent. And most importantly, he's consistent with the laws because he really does know them since he, he is the maker of the laws. We, we like to bend and twist them. So we're going to break the laws all the time. We're going to misinterpret them. He is the ultimate lawmaker and the ultimate judge. It's not us. 
And also it's not us because we're not able to save anyone. I can't change your will. As my brother and sister of Christ, I can't come to you with love. I can come to you with your Christ, with scriptures and I can try to give constructive criticism and share with you right from wrong and Christian conduct, but I can't change your will. I can't make you submit to God. God can change you. God can transform you. So that is also why we can't sit in these some seats of judgment in that way anyway. We can't do that because we're not able to save. And we also are not able to destroy. Since God is the one who decides what the laws are, God is the final decision, the ultimate judge of whether you actually did break a law or whether you upheld it. And I personally, I thank God for that because if I had to depend on other people's decision of whether I did or did not break or uphold the law, whoo, think all of us could be grateful for that. I'm glad that God has the final decision and he determines whether I upheld the law, whether I broke the law, and whether I submitted and got back right with him and repented for any laws I did break so that God could save me. So verse 12 is interesting because after James makes his point, he ends it with a question, kind of like Jeopardy. He's given us all the answers and then there's a question at the end. You know, it's kind of in the form, it's backwards. So he says, who are you to judge another? Now, in case you ever get stuck on this, you know, now we know the difference between good judging and bad judging. We want to be constructive. We want to do constructive criticism. We want to do it with love. We make sure we love our neighbor. We don't want to be the nasty judge, the one that thinks they're above the law and all self-righteous. We know the difference now, how to, how, to, how to discern when we are doing it right versus doing it the way that James opposes. But if you ever get stuck, think about this question in, in, in verse 12. Who are you to judge another? And in case you ever forget who you are, go back and look at verse one. And remember that when this all started, you were a person desiring after the pleasures of the world with an internal spiritual conflict going on within you. If you forever forget who you are and who you are to judge someone, go back and look at verse four and remember that you too have cheated on God. All of us are to be keepers of the law. All of us need to love our neighbor. All of us need to work on what's going on within us. And the way we do that is by submitting to God. And when we submit to God, everything else will align in our relationships with our neighbors, our brothers, and our sisters. Submit to God because he gives more grace. So I see we have about 10 minutes left. Are there any questions or comments? Um, I thank you all for your engagement. And I hope that this lesson has given you some good application and some good food for thought uh, to apply to your lives and to hold on to, uh, to get you through some difficult situations and to change our behaviors and our attitudes. 
Um, but yes, I appreciate your engagement today and for participating again in this series that we've been doing on James. It has been a blessing to me. I hope it's been a blessing to you also. So yes, if you have any, any questions, please type them in the chat. Um, happy to answer anything. I see some of your comments in here. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, and while you're thinking of some questions, I want to remind you of a few things. Um, I want to remind you of a few things that are going on at St. Paul in the upcoming days. First of all, remember that tonight we have our last and final installment of Thankful Thursdays. Tonight at 7 p.m., uh, Reverend Dr. Uh, Brown is going to come and speak with us. Um, and, and if you have missed the last two Thankful Thursdays, go back on YouTube, go back on Facebook, pull them up, listen to the testimonies of our brothers and sisters, and listen to the sermons and the messages that came to us. Thankful Thursdays have been powerful, so please go back and pull those up on YouTube. Um, also coming up Saturday, if you have not gotten your new Sunday school book, Saturday there will be the book drop off in front of church. You can drive by curbside, pick up your new Sunday school book. And then most importantly, please remember to support our young adult ministry on Tuesday the 23rd. Kaya will um, be hosting God's Grace and Mercy. Uh, Minister Jeffrey Stevenson and Ashley Rozier, they will be hosting uh, the November installment of Kaya and bless us um, with experiences about God's grace and mercy. Looking forward to that. Um, I do not see any questions in the chat, but I thank you all for your kind comments and for uh, staying on um, and listening to today's lesson and, and getting something out of it to apply to your lives. Um, if you want to use this moment to give, we, we do do offering during Bible study as well. Um, if you prefer, you can, of course, mail an envelope to the church. The address is on the screen. You are happy. You are more than welcome to mail one or drop one off by the office, but be sure to call the office first to make sure someone will be there to uh, collect your check money order. Um, also, you can give online. Uh, we are able to uh, do donations on Givelify and also on the church website. And you can either give just sacrificial offering or give to actual Bible studies as well. Um, and then let's see, is there another way that we give? Those are only two I remember right now. <laughs> yeah, so you got Givelify and the church website. And of course you can drop off or mail your envelope. Um, so yes, please give. Um, thank you for your kind comments and your word again. And thank you for your participation today. Let us bow for a moment of prayer. Lord, we thank you for, for what you have done in this lesson today. Lord, I thank you for making me a vessel to share the word that you poured into me with your people, Lord. Lord, thank you for what you will reveal to us through this lesson and how you will help us to not only change our lives, but to change the relationships that we have with others. Lord, help us to continue to be a bridge and not build up barriers. Lord, bless everyone as we go into the Thanksgiving holiday, bless their safety, bless their time with family and friends. And Lord, for those who do not know what the Thanksgiving holiday season holds, because there are less family members than they had last year and sitting at the dinner table. Lord, I ask that you comfort their hearts and hold their hands through this season and have compassion for them. Lord, we thank you for all of the blessings that you have bestowed upon us and all that you will allow us to do to serve your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Everyone be blessed. 
Uh, thank you for your time this evening and enjoy thankful Thursdays tonight. <laughs>